You're listening to Sunny Side Up, a bite-sized podcast that brings you real-world insights that help go-to-market professionals evolve and stay up-to-date on the latest trends. Join us as we share best practices and proven techniques from industry experts and practitioners. Today's episode is made possible by Demand Matrix. Demand Matrix helps you complete your data stack with technographic, intent, and revenue potential data to help you accelerate revenue. Thanks for listening. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Sunny Side Up. I'm your host, Asher Matthew, and this episode is going to be a treat, and I'll tell you guys why, or maybe I won't, and you'll just find out for yourself. But I'm super excited to have Sandy Carter on the line with us. And Sandy, welcome to the show. Asher, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure and a true honor. Um, I work for Amazon Web Services, and I am a vice president here in charge of our public sector and regulated industry partners and programs. Fantastic. And as somebody who spent a large chunk of their, let's call it smaller career, in partnerships, I'm just excited to have another executive in partnerships who I can have this conversation with. And by the way, there are millions of people out there that are exploring the world of partnerships and trying to understand what do the new generation partnerships look like that look like. And for that, we were definitely going to have you on again. But today's topic specifically is about the data-driven super exec. And so we are in a world where we have data which has literally become such an important thing, uh, whether whether we can thank the last 12 months or so for it or not. Um, and then we have these, these amazing individuals around the world who are trying to understand how do they become senior executives. So what I, let's start the conversation with the first part of the uh, uh uh, of this and focus on data. So would love to hear your thoughts on data, the state of data and guide us through what your views are. Yeah, I would love to do that because data has such gravity and is so incredibly important. A lot of people use an analogy, Asher, that data is oil, but I like to say that data is soil because everything else grows up from data. Uh, every person today on the earth generates about 1.7 metabytes of data every second. So imagine all of that data. If you could use that as a starting point for how your company or agency or government or you can conduct your business, you could really capture relevant business insights instantly that fuels innovation. So it's really gone from being something that was cumbersome, expensive, to becoming the lifeblood of many customers' business model. Fantastic. And so you're definitely at the helm of this thing, right? Because you work for a company that is charting the uh, charting the waters for how does one harness the data, collect it, cleanse it, put it together, grab insights for it, right? Now, and and you're also you've all, you're also a very seasoned exec, so you've seen how companies have grown with or without data, right? So where were we, and what has changed right now? Yeah, you know, I think it's um, if you think about what's happening in the market today, there are um, changes that are being driven by COVID. And Asher, you know, some people say, "Well, this is this is the new normal," and then it'll go back to the way it was. I don't think we're ever going to go back. I don't know about you, but I don't see us going backwards. 
And so I see a lot of things that COVID has sped up, digital transformation, for example. Uh, in fact, one of our dear partners, Trilio, did a, a study and said that digital transformations have sped up by 5.3 years. Roadmaps were compressed into weeks and days because of what happened with COVID. And I really don't see us going backwards. I really see us driving and using more and more data. Um, I know you've got some technologists on the line and some go-to-market leaders, but I think in order to really and fully grasp the value of data for your business, I'm not talking about you as an executive right now, but as a for your business, um, you need to get your data into a data lake. You need to set up analytics so you can get insight from that data. And then ultimately, you'll want to leverage AI and ML, artificial intelligence and machine learning, to anticipate changes and to look ahead. And that could be used in many, many different ways. So a lot of this has changed over time. And uh, I was just looking, Asher, at the latest uh, World Economic Forum. So I sit on one of their diversity committees there, and they just released a new report. And data scientists, digital transformationists are the top two jobs, supposedly for the next five years, jobs we had never even heard of, you know, maybe four or five years ago have now become the top and most important jobs at different companies. Understanding data is so important. Yeah, so what I've seen, and I spend a lot of time with go-to-market teams, and it's almost like like the data teams used to sit in IT. And, and they were a function of IT. They would work on compliance. They would work on like ingestion of data and making sure that the data was prepared well. And now the data teams are actually being moved into the functional groups as whether you're a go-to-market leader or you're a product leader or you're a company leader, you know, the CFO, I'm sure at some point in time will also have a data team that supports them that has data scientists in it. it there's this explosion of data science and the promise of data science. And I just want to want to also define what a data scientist does right, and doesn't do because we used to have business in, uh, intelligence folks, and we usually have data analysts, right? And then the, the data scientist's job is actually to understand the root cause of a problem and build a solution from there versus the data analysts and the business intelligence folks are just reporting on what's being done. And Asher, could I add one thing to that too? Yeah, I yeah, also yeah. think a really important difference for a data scientist is data science is interdisciplinary. So it's not just a technology job. It's really a job that combines several different functions to extract knowledge and insight. Um, and I do think that that's a really big difference from what it used to be as well. That's a really good point because when the data scientists get into these functional teams, right, they do need the same ramp time. And the teams that are hosting these data scientists in the team need to help them understand their world. And I've actually heard from multiple data scientists where they're, they, they don't know if these teams will actually accept them or not. And there is a little bit of this cultural element too, if you want to unlock the, the, all the goodness that these, these people can bring to you. Yeah, and I will tell you if they if they don't feel accepted on their team, come to my team <laughs> because we're hiring uh, data scientists like crazy. It's really important to understand the the you know what we're what we're seeing with customers, what we're seeing with partners. I mean, again, the, this explosion of data, and I will tell you right before this, I was on with um, IDC, and we were chatting about the explosion of IoT. 
and all the sensors that now exist in every supply chain, in your tennis shoes, right? I mean, they're everywhere. And what does that do? Well, that creates even more data. And IDC has said that the amount of data since COVID, because of these sensors now, has exploded five times bigger just since COVID. So what's that, like a year and a half? Yep. Um, And that's even, I think, going to push up the importance of this data scientist role as well. So, and and you work with partners, right? And I I have a very soft spot for partners because I've worked with them for so long, right? What's the partner opportunity? I'm just curious, like because it sounds like you have a vendor like yourself, right? And you're going to create all these amazing tools, and people can can get certified and stuff. And and so, where do the partners come in? Oh wow, the partners are really essential for this particular area. If you think about it. Um, I'll just speak about our AWS partners. So they leverage our technology to help support and accelerate what we're seeing uh, as the top trends. And so mission-driven innovation and this digital transformation is all based on data. And so partners today bring to bear their subject matter expertise, both in the industry side like data for healthcare needs HIPAA compliance. And it's very different types of data than what you would need in, let's say, for space or for, um, you know, a transportation company. And so, for example, uh, we just named two award-winning partners for our data-led migration area. One is Calibra and one is Databricks. And if you look at them, both of them provide that extra special value that customers need. So Calibre run for their data intelligence platform. And what it does is it brings together fragmented data environments that exist out there. So, you know, if you've got structured data and unstructured data, you've got data sitting in spreadsheets and people's heads and, you know, different servers it really helps to integrate that and then helps them to find value in that. So AWS serves as the infrastructure, but that data level is done here by this partner. And then Databricks is really focused on moving data from on-premises to the cloud and then applying analytics and machine learning models. And why does that matter? Well, you've got so much data. When you start training a machine learning model, you need a lot of of power. And that really happens in the cloud that you can turn it off and turn it on. You don't want to build a data center out for that. So these are just some of the ways that we see, you know, our partners uh, that are so essential in the space, leveraging this opportunity in the the market. And, And I will tell you, I was just reading a report this morning that came out of IDC And it was showing um, the importance of data and analytics. And yesterday, I just saw a report from Gartner on healthcare. And now the number one issue in healthcare is getting the right data and doing analytics on it. So this will, again, continue to accelerate. And partners are a great way to leverage value for your, your particular problem or issue that you're having in your company. I'm also seeing data systems integrators, you want to call them, or maybe like we can drop the word systems and just call them data integrators, like the Brooklyn data company and stuff. And, you know, they're just sporadically coming up. And when you look at those companies, they're built uh, off data scientists in them. And and all they're trying to do is work on that insights layer because they know that the pipeline builders and all those guys, like they've already done the work. And then people are struggling to understand or extract value from the data that they already have. And then there's this type of potential partner uh, brewing up as well. 
Yeah, I agree. Like Datacom for me is a data integrator. They also won an award for us around the work that they're doing with data. Um, and as a data integrator, they're looking at storing the data, analyzing the data, data, interpreting the data, and helping companies figure out how to act on the data, which is even more important, I think, is the actions that you take, yes. not just that you have all this data sitting around. I think this is particularly important for the go-to-market teams too. Asher, you know, you started out telling me that a lot of the audiences go to market. Yep. And, um, you know, if, if you look at surveys, I was looking at one yesterday, like what is the biggest gap that companies are now seeing in that marketing go-to-market area? And it's the use of data to make the right business decisions. How are you doing that? So as a go-to-market leader, as you're analyzing your channel, are you using data to do that? Is it a data-backed decision? If you're a marketeer, are you using data to target the right audience? Um, if you're a sales leader, are you using the right data um, in order to um, you know, demonstrate your value to the customer? So this is not just for the engineers. This is directly for all these kind of market leaders that exist out there today and who are doing such a great job. I really think a secret weapon for any company is their go-to-market team. 100%. Yeah. The, I think the, the reason why companies fail, or I, like, I guess I live in San Jose, so it's uh, the reason why startups fail is because they run out of money. Or I guess one of the leading reasons is that. And then the second thing is they run out of money because they can't get sales done because they don't target the right person. Or in some cases, they target everybody. And then they serve a whole plethora of customers when they should be really serving one type of customer to get them to uh, scale phase. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, you know, if you think about it, data literacy is going to be really important uh, to every business leader. And in fact, Asher, that might be a good series for you, right? Yes. Let's do kind of, uh, you know, phase one, phase two, phase three of data literacy. What does that mean to you as a go-to-market leader? Because you will be looking at different, um, you know, different things. How you do your segmentation, for instance, yeah. should be data-driven. Um, and if you can use analytics, you get, you know, kind of a C, but if you can use machine learning and AI, maybe you're up there in the A or A plus range. So I think teams need to start thinking about how they're using and leveraging their data. Um, what is their literacy? Do they have the right team? I just told you, you know, that we've hired data scientists and you can't, you just can't replace that skill today. There's just too much information. You need insight and actionable elements. You don't just need more data. Great points. And let's shift gears to like data and executives, right? And and the 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 role that data can play in helping with the digital transformation and the executive's journey through that. One of the things that's happened, at least that I've observed in earlier stage executives, and not by the company, but just in their journey, right? Like most people are very savvy functionally, but they're not operationally savvy. And it's, there's always they always get dinged because of that, right? And, and I feel like if they learn how to study the data and understand the data, they can unpack some of the insights and help them guide the companies in the right manner. But you've been at the helm of, of your role for quite some time. And so I would love to get some tidbits from you. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think the first piece uh, as an executive and helping to leverage data is just the recognition that you need data and you need the right data. One of the funniest things, and we don't have a picture here, but let me see if I can paint a picture with words. So I show a picture of two sumo wrestlers. 
And what we decided to do to illustrate the point that you need the right data is we fed into a machine learning model. So we did training on a machine learning model with romance novels. So we did 11 million romance novels. We input that into the system and we train the machine learning model. Now, remember, these are two sumo wrestlers. Yes. And so then we said, looking at this picture, Mr. or Mrs. Computer, tell us what you see. Well, what is the story going to be? If you input all romance novels, the output is going to be, oh, he leaned over and gently kissed him on the cheek. Well, that's not at all what two sumo wrestlers are doing. And I have executives really laugh at that analogy. They're like, yeah, who would use romance novels to train for sumo wrestling? And then I say, okay, now let's talk about your company. So what data are you inputting in to train this learning model? Everybody wants to talk about machine learning and AI, but unless you have the right data going into the training, the output is going to be wrong. So I think for every executive to think about first is what data do you need? What what data do you use to make decisions? And do you have the right quantity of the data, right? You need enough data to be able to make the decision. Do you have enough quality of data? The data has to be good quality. And do you have the right data source? So you've got to look at all of those as as an executive at a business looking at the data. I think the second thing you need to do is figure out um, you're going to get a lot of data, that quantity usually, or you're going to buy data if you don't have enough, is now how do you get insight from all the data that you have? How are you going to you know, search that data, filter that data, aggregate that data, visualize that data so that you can make the right decisions and get the right insight from the data? Um, I had one executive who uh, was showing me some of the data that they had received on go-to-market and in their board presentation, they just had PowerPoint after PowerPoint of the data. But what the board was looking for is, okay, given the data, what are we going to, what's the insight? Like what's the, what are the nuggets that you want us to take away? And then I would say finally, and people want to start here, but they have to, they have to really get through the stages is machine learning. Machine learning can really help assist in driving better decisions. So I'll just give you one example. We have a partner, Splunk, and um, they've been working with the city of Los Angeles, where you're from or where you where you recently yes. live. So the city of Los Angeles said, look, we've got all these agencies. We want to be able to act really quickly against any cyber attacks, you know, all these ransomware attacks, everything that's going on. So we need to figure this out. So what Splunk was able to do is not only gather the data, uh, make sure they had the right source, the right quantity, the right quality of data, but they were able to do real-time analysis, Asher, of 240 million security records from 40 different agencies that increased the city's ability to protect against 100 million cybersecurity threat attacks. So that's what we're talking about. You're not you're going to eventually use machine learning to anticipate, but you've got to start with where is the data? Is it the right data? You know, is it in a data lake to doing analytics on it to then getting into the predictive capability which is machine learning. I would also love to add that as an executive, you should be thinking about scale when you think about everything, right? And you can incubate in a section of your company, but you have to think about scale. And and the tools that are available now allow you to do that. 
And if you have some time, take some courses or, you know, start a podcast and interview interview data scientists because those folks out there are would love to talk to other people, especially executives who would listen to them and hear their stories out. And once you unlock this capability, you'll have really rich insights. But then the second point I would love to make is, is once you have the insight, and especially if you go to a board, if you're going to take, talk about an insight, please also talk about what you're going to do about the insight and that you've thought about the resourcing for that initiative. Because the one thing that boards hate, at least, and Sandy, you can confirm this, right? Is uh, Or deny this, right? Is if you go with an idea and you have, don't have the resourcing and the, the how you would do it, and you can explain it to them in like 30 seconds or less, you're not going to get an approval and you're still going to have to come back again. Yeah, I completely agree with that. You you definitely need to figure out and state how you're going to execute your implementation plan. I would agree. The other thing that I would add to it is, um, you know, there is um, a new concept now too called explainable AI, explainable artificial intelligence, to where you know it's not just a black box. So if you are presenting to a board. It shouldn't be, voila, we used machine learning and AI and this was the output. They're, they're going to want to understand how it happened. So you've got to be able to have explainable AI. So this is the input we used. These are kind of the algorithms we were thinking about. And this is the output. Not it was black magic that happened as you moved. It's so interesting to hear you say that because even in my short career, right, like I've gone from sales leaders who would say, yes. We can see see it. We should go totally go make our number. We should go dial like a million calls a year and get it done, right? And the, we're now in the world where people and boards are asking for, can you tell me like where you got this data from? Because that would never be a thing, right? Like it would just say, okay, you're making the numbers and you need to add more headcount, et cetera, et cetera, we get there. But now people actually want to know, where did you get this data from? Mm-hmm. Was that data gathered ethically and responsibly? Are you making sure that once the data is used, it is taken care of or like purged out of the systems? And there's this entire like data responsibility thing that's come up as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, I think it's it's always important to explain how you reached a conclusion, whether you reached it yourself or whether you leveraged a tool like artificial intelligence or machine learning to help you come to that conclusion, it's always important that you can still explain how you got there and, uh, you know, and what really, what really happened, what really drove that to, to help you get gain that insight as well. I think that's really important, really in anything that you're doing, whether you're using data or not, being able to explain very succinctly how you reach that conclusion is going to be really important. I'm so glad you said that, which allows us to segue into the next part of the podcast. And 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 I would love to get your points on how should earlier stage VPs think about unlocking themselves to become senior VPs, or whether or at least have a framework to decide whether they do actually want to do that or not, right? Because that's the I feel like the first point of this. And then once you decide it, then how does one become? Because the common advice is get to get to become a VP, build a bunch of amazing relationships, and everything else will take care of this, this itself. While I think that's the foundation, I think there's more to it. And you seriously, seriously are one of the executives that is super accomplished. So I would love to get some tidbits from you on that. Yeah, I mean, um, there is no one size fits all. So I'll just give you, um, Asher, I'll give some kind of um, 
what we call some of our leadership principles that I think are really important as you're looking at becoming, you know, that higher level executive. So one, I believe that is essential is to be curious, constantly be learning and ask a lot of questions. So for me, this is important because we kind of let off with, well, there's all these new roles out there that didn't exist three to five years ago. So if you're not constantly learning, you're going to be left behind. And as a VP or as a senior executive at a company, you're going to be leading the change. You'll be disrupting yourself. And so one of the ways you do that is you have to be able to look around corners and see what's coming and even maybe make what's coming come. A friend of mine wrote a book called The uh, Creator's Code. And what she did was she researched all these amazing innovators, Jeff Bezos, um, Steve Jobs when he was alive, Elon Musk. And one of the things that she found out is that these incredible innovators ask hundreds of questions every day. They're really curious. Like they want to know why something's happening this way. They're not asking you to trip you up. They're asking you because they genuinely want to know. And so when she found that, that that was common amongst all the great innovators, she went out and she looked at how many questions we as adults ask. And on average, we as adults ask about 10 questions a day. Now, you might ask more, Asher, because you're doing these podcasts. But in an average workday, an adult asks 10 questions. And so she said, wow, so is it just that great innovators have always asked those questions? So she went back to uh, studies and she found that kids ask hundreds of questions every day. It doesn't matter who they are, all of them. I mean, you know, I have two daughters, like, why is the sky blue? What is that cloud out there? They're constantly asking questions because they're curious. And somewhere between being a child and an adult, we lose that curiosity. So I think if you're going to pursue a bigger role, you need to retain that curiosity and that learn and be curious is very important. Um, I think the next area that is super uh, important for a senior level executive, at least in my opinion, is that you are um, empathetic. You're like a super empathetic person. That's not only for your employees, especially right now, that's super important, um, but it's also for your customers. At Amazon, we call it customer obsession. You're obsessed with your customers. You're not obsessed with your competitors. You're obsessed with your customers. And that gives you that edge, like you're going to, because you talk to your customers so much and you're so obsessed with them, you're always the one who can come up with a new idea because you're in touch with where they are and what they're doing. And then I think the final one is reinvent and simplify. I think the higher up in an organization you go, the more you need to look across it and say, there's a lot of complexity here. You kind of you kind of get above everything and you can see some of the complexity maybe that others don't see. And then you need to really focus on reinventing and simplifying that. I think that's really important for every executive. So this morning, for example, I was on a call with all of my managers and we were just, you know, it's simple, but automating some of the things, how many hours it could save us. So we took one project and we could save 11,000 hours just by doing that one automation. But no one would have really connected the dots had we not had someone overall looking at it. So for me, I think those are three things. If you're thinking about, you know, going to that next level, do you love asking questions and learning and exploring? Do you love sympathizing and empathizing with your employees and 
really obsessing over your customer? And, you know, do you get joy from simplifying and reinventing things? I think if the answer to those are yes, I think it would be a good fit and something that you should explore. I love how you have the following the rule of threes and giving three tidbits to <laughs> apply. Yeah. And and I would also say, give yourself time because I don't know if many people take the time to apply like some of the guidance that you've given, right? But but then they're too hard on themselves, right? And and once you get to a level, you have to actually like spend time and enjoy even the little conversations, the most complex conversations, increase your span. But the most important thing is you just have to give yourself time and then, of course, surround yourself with amazing people. But I feel like everybody at that level is amazing or is is desperate for greatness. Some just choose to not give up and get to the finish line faster or just get to the finish line, period. But you do have to give yourself time. What do you think? Yeah, I think so. I don't think there's any, you know, some people will say, well, I need to be at this level in five years. I need to be at this level in 10 years. I don't think it really works that way. I think everybody is very different. And, you know, if I look at my career, you know, it'd be going up, sideways, backwards, you know, sideways, up, down, you'd go all over. I don't think there's one typical path. So I think you do need to take your time. And there may be times, Asher, when you want to really step up based on what's happening in your life and in the business and maybe times when you want to pull back a little bit and wait and contemplate and think about what that next thing is. Because regardless of what you do, what level you are, you need to really love what you do. You need to be passionate about it. You spend too much time at it. I think that's why right now we're seeing people reevaluate their lives and their careers and what's important to them. And I think you constantly need to be doing that because if you don't get joy from what you're doing, you do it too much. You really need to look at what that next thing is. Yeah. And actually, like if you look at the last, uh, let's say, year or so, right, I think I think people panicked and because people panicked, they had to like stay where they are at. And and then because if you panic the safest thing is don't do anything, right? And then and then now people are starting, they've had time or maybe like 12 months or so to think about what they want to do next and they are well prepared and for sure they're going to be ready for if another type of pandemic thing happens here, they're definitely going to be prepared, but they also are well planned for the steps they want to take next. So I think the moves people are going to make are actually intentional. They're not just frustrated, but they're, they just see themselves at a different place doing different things. Yeah, I think that's true. And I, and I also think, you know, there's this fear of missing out too, right? I think you can't constantly be looking at it. It's just like my example of, are you customer obsessed or are you competitor obsessed? If you constantly spend your time looking at your competitors, you're always going to be behind. You're going to be a copycat. You're going to be a follower. If you always spend your time looking at customers, you're going to be ahead. I think the same thing is true for you and your career. If you're constantly reading Facebook and looking at LinkedIn and going, oh my gosh, look, Asher just moved to Silicon Valley. Wow, Asher's doing these magnificent things versus looking at what brings you joy, what brings you value. What are your superpowers, right? My superpowers aren't the same as your superpowers. And I need to be focusing on my superpowers and how I can bring value not comparing myself to you. And I find a lot of people do that. In fact, a lot of people will come into a mentoring session and they'll say, 
well, I just read about Fred on LinkedIn and, and I'm like, no, I don't care about Fred. Let's talk about you. Like what, what do you love to do? What is your superpower? Where do you see yourself? And I think it's really important. I think it, I think social media has kind of trained us to be, have that, that fear of missing out. You're the first executive that we've had on the show that's actually talked about mentoring sessions. And so how frequently do you do them? Do you have a cadence? Do you have a limit of who, how many people you take on at a time? Like, like walk us through when you're on, when you're a super senior experienced executive and you want to give back, then what's the right cadence? Yeah. So I do have a list and I do limit it because I found, um, I love helping people, Asher. And so I said yes too much. And if I say yes too much, that means then everybody kind of suffers. So I started limiting myself to a certain set of mentors um, and I'll sign up for a year and see how it goes. So there's one or two that I've had for 10 years, but a lot I'll mentor for a year and then say, you know, you're going to graduate now, or you're going to now, you know, now you need your board of directors of mentees that your mentors that you're going to go after. I try to pick people that I feel, well, first of all, they, they have to ask. Yes, so of course. a lot of people will come to me and they'll say, well, I'm here. I see you're mentoring Sarah, but I didn't get asked to be a mentee. What what happened? And I said, well, she asked me. <laughs> um, so you do have to ask. So be bold enough to ask. When you ask, you should come in and say why and how you think that that executive can help you. Not just because I need to, I want to get to know you better or I admire you, but what what is it that you like about what I do or how I work that you want to learn from? Um, I also do sessions. I typically do 30 minutes and I let the mentee drive it. I have them bring in like two or three things that they're working on. No more than three. As you know, I like my threes. (laughs) Um, And then I usually end with, okay, here's a couple of books that I recently read, or here's a couple of articles I recently read. Or um, most recently, there was a podcast that I thought was great. I said, here, you know, take and listen to this podcast just to, again, constantly be learning and be curious at all times. Um, And that's kind of what I do. And I think so far, you know, um, my motto is to reach back and pull others forward. I've got lots of examples, lots of great people out there that are just doing incredible things now. And I hope I played some small part in that. Super generous of you and super gracious. And this is why you're Sandy Carter. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, I, I want to be respectful of your time as well. And and there's a section, this section of the, the podcast actually makes the podcast actionable, right? And so we always ask people if they would, they have a resource, a book, a blog, a newsletter, a website or video that you would recommend to our listeners. So we'd love to get your resource recommendation. Yeah. So I personally post a lot of things out to uh, LinkedIn. In fact, I just posted, I was actually doing some mentoring with some of my partners and I told them about my new email footer. It's a truly human uh, notice that basically says, look, we're all working so much and we're a digitally enabled economy now. And I have a global team. So there's really no great time for me to send email. So I'm going to send it when it's good for me. You reply when it's good for you. I was surprised about the outpouring of that particular post. I had like a million and a half engagements on that post. Yeah, my biggest one to date. It was incredible. 
I would say 90% of the people thought it was great. Some thought I should figure out a way to schedule email so it went at the right time to the right person. And I don't know how to do that. Maybe I'll use AI and ML to figure that out yep. in the future. <laughs> um, but but anyway, so I tend to post a lot on LinkedIn and I would love to have anybody um, follow me there. I tend to read a lot of books. I met Malcolm Gladwell. I love his books, Outliers, Blink. Yep. There's several of his books that I just find um, fascinating. Um, one of the folks that I use as a mentor recently recommended a book called High Output Management by Andy Grove. It's an older book, but it really focuses on you can get your teams to focus on the output, not all the in-process metrics. Yes. I also find that reading uh, relaxes me and helps redirect my mind. So I read a lot of fiction too, and I encourage people to do that just to kind of because if you're always reading business books and you're always on, I do feel like you're going to burn out. So I do feel like you should, um, you know, read some things that are different. And then I think your podcasts are great. You know, you've got some great and interesting insights from B2B marketeers and sellers. Of course, if you're listening today, you may already know that. But um, I think that your podcast is a really good one, too, because it provides actionable insight and, you know, things that you can really focus on. Well, thank you for that. We try really hard and I want to give a shout out to the team that helps me put this together because they work diligently to schedule folks and make sure that people feel respected and have a fun time doing this. So thank you. Thank you for that. All right. Two last questions. If are there two or three other people in B2B go to market or data science that you recommend we bring on the show? Well, one of the things I would love is for you guys to leverage some of our great partners out there. So I talked earlier about Calibra and Databricks. I think executives from either or both of those companies would be phenomenal to have on the show. Both of them focus on data-led migrations. I think that would be interesting. This morning, I just did an interview with Presidio. Presidio, if you don't know... Presidio just completed a piece of work that I find phenomenal in terms of purpose and value, which is they recently helped the Cherokee Nation uh, figure out a way to both work with the elders and the youth on preserving their language, the Cherokee language. And we all know how important that Cherokee language has been in our entire history. And so they leveraged data and gaming and serverless and some really cool things to do that. So I think they would be really uh, an interesting interview for you. And then Lisa over at DLZP Group, she's based out of Texas. First of all, she's a a female minority founder of a great tech company. Uh, She's got some interesting lessons that she's learned. Uh, Truth in advertising. She is an AWS partner as well. But uh, she's gone through some great lessons learned in her overall career. I actually have her coming, Asher, in two weeks. I'm having a a leadership team meeting in Seattle, and she's actually coming out, and I've asked her to share some of her lessons learned there as well. Fantastic. Well, these, the, all these sound great recommendation. And as a true partner champion, you actually promoted your partners, which I love, which is literally what all partnerships leaders should be doing is making their partners shine any and every given moment they have. So, all right. Uh, this one may be a little, actually, I'm going to ask the question and then I'm going to put a disclaimer after the question, right? So what would be the best way for people to connect with you after this podcast if they have questions? 
Yeah, I think probably the best would be LinkedIn. I'm Sandy Carter out on LinkedIn. You can find me if you if you Google Sandy Carter LinkedIn, I'm the first one that comes up. Uh, that would probably be the best way. I'm also pretty active on Twitter. Those are kind of my two hangouts. I do some uh, clubhouse, especially for startups. So we just featured um, a session on female founders. So I'm on clubhouse and uh, really almost any form of social media would be a great way. But I think LinkedIn and Twitter would probably be the top two ways. Fantastic. And now for the disclaimer, if you're going to send an, a LinkedIn message or something like that to an executive, please be specific. Do not send a general vague message. It's very hard for executives to action those and help you. Everybody wants to help other people, but you have to be specific. And I'm saying this after interviewing 170 executives, and that's my one big takeaway from working with top executives like Sandy. So Sandy, this has been great. Thank you so much for being gracious with your time and best of luck in your journey. Thank you so much. And Asher, go, go, go. This is a great podcast. I think it's a great lesson learned for the great things that you can do when you really have passion for something. So thank you. And I'm honored that you chose me as one of your 174 executives that you've interviewed. So thank you. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Sunny Side Up. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review us and share these insights with your peers.